This is Strange Assembly episode 310, PAX Unplugged 2021, an end of year wrap. I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can find us on the web at strangeassembly.com, subscribe to this podcast and Apple Podcasts or whatever podcatching service you use. You can also find some additional content on our Strange Assembly YouTube channel. Now, under normal circumstances, an episode about PAX Unplugged and an end-of-the-year wrap-up would be separate things for us, but it is getting deeper into December. I'm leaving town for the rest of the year, and so I have got to strive mightily to get this in a relatively compact episode so I can actually edit it in time to release it before I leave. So. I'm just going to go ahead and combine a, a quick rundown of some highlights from PAX Unplugged with our end-of-the-year wrap-up content. After a hiatus in 2020 for obvious reasons, PAX Unplugged returned in 2021 with full masking and vaccination requirements. And for space reasons, I'm going to limit myself to 10. Yes, that's right. 10 things is still limiting myself. 10 things from PAX Unplugged. Number one, Tales of Zadia, a Dragon Prince role-playing game. Dragon Prince is an animated show on Netflix. Tales of Zadia is a tabletop role-playing game. It's not just the Dragon Prince show. They also have an arrangement with Wonderworks to expand out the universe, add in more, you know, quote-unquote canon characters, and fill out, for example, what the five human kingdoms are, and what the elves do beyond, you know, the one sky elf you see and the one city of sun elves that you see in the show. Uh, what I got the chance to do was go through character creation, essentially. We didn't play. Uh, it uses the Cortex system, so if you're familiar with that, the basics will be the same, although that's modular and changeable from exactly how you do it. Essentially, you have a variety of skills or attributes or distinctions that are rated in particular dice. You're always rolling at least three dice. You choose two dice, which contribute to whether or not you succeed. And then the third die is how well you succeed. So if you have a relatively low difficulty and one of your dice is quite impressive, right, if you can accomplish the difficulty with some lesser dice, then you, you know, that bigger dice might be able to get you a, a more potent effect. But in Tales of Zadia, you are either choosing a character from one of those five human kingdoms or one of the three kinds of elves, and that is known as your kindred. You then pick a vocation, which is going to be an adjective and a noun, essentially. So your vocation might be soldier or detective or something like that. And then there's a, a modifier in that. You might be a curious soldier or an officious detective. T take your pick. Then you have a quirk kind of reminiscent of those three distinctions of the way Numenera does, an adjective, noun, who verbs, those three things. Uh, but while you're picking all of those elements, they also affect the dice for your character's values. So you have attributes, which are your basic physical things, you know, awareness and influence and spirit. Then you have the distinctions, and then you have values. And the values at base level are just single words, devotion, glory, justice, liberty, you know, what matters to your character. But then you also put in statements about 
what they mean to your character. Like when your character has a high level of devotion, what does that mean? What are they devoted to? If you believe in justice, you know, what is justice to you? Why do you care about liberty? And that provides more flavor to the character creation. The one downside I had was going into it as just doing character creation and just watching the show. Like I mentioned, you there's kind of a narrow presentation of the elves in the show, and then you don't see much of most of the five human kingdoms. So I'm definitely looking forward to seeing the whole book so you can kind of get more of a sense of how these different kindred work in the world. They're also... And they is uh, fandom uh, is the one publishing it. This is also going to be a, a digital and published thing. So you can go through an online character creation instead of just doing it in person or take your physical thing and then input it online. And it is actually just being published. Uh, sometimes you wonder if everything's just going to be a Kickstarter at some point. But no, it's just being published. That is Tales of Zadia, the Dragon Prince role-playing game from fandom. Second, since we mentioned Kickstarters, Something that was not yet available because it's coming to Kickstarter in March is Legacy of Isla Nubar. And this is the Jurassic Park legacy game. Not a dinosaur world Jurassic Park-ish game, but an actual Jurassic Park game. It's coming from Prospero Hall slash Funko Games as they... They are Funko Games. I think that when they get labeled Funko Games... People mostly just think of the Funko-verse games when they actually make a bunch of games that aren't just that. This one is going to be much bigger, you know, physically bigger than anything that they've done before. It is going to be a a straight-up, flat-out legacy game, right? You're going to be modifying things. You're going to be stickering things. It's going to start with you first surveying the island of Isla Nubar and figuring out how to set up your dinosaur park. And then over the course of those... Legacy games, you're going to recreate different kinds of dinosaurs, which then each have their own little miniature that is going to end up on the board. You even have the option to splice different kinds of creatures together. What happens if you combine Brachiosaur DNA with Tiger DNA? Who knows? It features characters from the source material, right, from the movies and the books. It also features newly created characters, right, because there isn't actually a movie where you see them just surveying the island like you're going to start off with at the beginning of this. It looks really cool. It's got this really nifty adventure comic style presentation for everything like the rule books. Like I said, that's coming to Kickstarter in March of next year, I think March 22. It is going to be 120 bucks, and you get it. This isn't going to be one of these things where they try to start you off with a little bit and then use stretch goals to generate, right? Like They know what's going to be in the game. It's all set. It's all ready to go. That's Legacy of Isla Nubar from Prospero Hall slash Funko Games. Number three is Seventh Sea. Those of you who have been with us for a long, long time know that we started out covering Legend of the Five Rings, which was one of the Alderac Entertainment Group collectible card games. Right, This is before the whole Fantasy Flight slash Asmodee buys the Legend of the Five Rings universe. But that wasn't the only CCG that AEG made. They also made Doomtown, they also made 7C, they made a variety of other things. Well, Pinebox Entertainment has sort of resurrected some of these. They have been making a Doomtown card game again. Of course, it's not a, none of these are collectible card games, right? They're more of the ECG model where you 
just buy a fixed pack and then you can use that to expand your decks. They've had successful Kickstarters. They've already done that for Doomtown. And at PAX Unplugged, they were showing off 7th C, which was more of a, as you can ask of the name, was more of a naval combat sort of game. Now, the new version of 7th C kind of takes that focus in, right? What have people really liked about it? What well, turned out, yeah, they like the setting and the boats, but they really want more of a focus on the characters rather than just generic ships moving around. So this iteration of 7th C kind of pulls that focus down in on the characters a bit more. Two-player competitive card game. Character cards are deployed out to different locations, and then you're battling for control of those. They are set for a launch at Gen Con next year. So Gen Con 2022, they're going to go and do the whole, like, it's Gen Con, we're going to have the big initial launch tournament. So look for that in August of 2022, the new 7th C card game from Pinebox Entertainment. Number four, I got to check out the booth of a company that I've somehow never heard of before this, which was Resonim. And they had two games that particularly interested me. They had a lot of aesthetics that I liked, but two particular ones that I liked. One was Surrealist Dinner Party, which is a pretty straightforward card game where you are hosting, indeed, Surrealist at a dinner party. The object of the game is have your guests go home happy from the dinner party. And you do this by, right, you play the card out and then you have to match the character with the different things they want. Like, oh, you want alcohol or you want appetizers, you want this kind of food. But the two things that I particularly liked about it was that first, that the desires of the guests at the dinner party include drama and compliments. I like that. And then also the art, which was actually done by a surrealist artist in a surrealist style, is really great for this game. That's Surrealist Dinner Party. The second one was Mechanica. The tagline for this game is, The Revolution Will Be Spotless. Right? You are competing factory managers making robot vacuums that, unbeknownst to you, are you know going to launch the robot revolution and take over the world. But for the purposes of this, you have a factory that's making robot vacuums. Again, it's got a nice, literally clean aesthetic, right? But I also like that the board has your production lines on it and it's got a space where you can slot in puzzle pieces because the upgrades that you make to your factory are puzzle pieces and then they come out through this rotating device in the box you play out of the box you have your player board and then everything else just stays in the box so you put the piece in a slot where it's more expensive and you rotate it around and eventually if no one buys it it gets to the spot where there's a gaping hole and it falls in and poor piece. While that's going on, of course, you're actually building your factory, making more robots, generating more money, getting more factory upgrades. You win by having the most money. Of course, no matter which player wins, the robot vacuums are going to win ultimately, but eh, who cares about that? That was Surrealist Dinner Party and Mechanica by Resonim. Number five, Dungeon Craft Terrain from 1985 Games. As you can tell, this is terrain. This is not a game in and of itself. But I thought it was worth throwing out there because price point matters. And there are a lot of things you can do with your role-playing games these days to really expensively accessorize. And if you want to lay out a relatively, what's still a relatively large sum of money, yeah, you can get some really fancy interlocking 3D terrain to build all sorts of crazy stuff. But you know what? 
not everybody can afford that. Or even if you can, aren't going to sink that into the hobby. And so it's really nice to have reasonably priced, efficient alternatives to that sort of thing. That's one of the reasons why I love Pathfinder Pawns so much. Is it nicer to have a miniature for every single monster that your players are encountering? Sure. That costs a ridiculous amount of money. And so you have a similar thing here with this dungeon craft terrain. These are like dry erase sheets that you get. You know, it was maybe 40 bucks and you get a whole pack of these. And you have to cut them out. But by the time that you're done, you have a whole bunch of different terrain pieces that you can then put out on your map instead of just, you know, yeah, sure, you can go back and I've got the old school chess X mat and I can just hand draw everything out. But here you can put out different terrain features. You can put out buildings, you can put out forests, you can put out dungeon elements, depending on which one of these terrain packs that you bought and what you're using for the game. But I have to say that the kicker that I I particularly really liked was that the buildings, when they were double-sided, one side would be the roof of the building, and then the other side would be the interior. So when the characters arrive somewhere and they first go in, now you can just flip it right over, and bam, there's the room layout. I really like that. And again, at a a very reasonable price point, that is Dungeon Craft Terrain from 1985 games. I finally, at PAX Unplugged, got the chance to play Origins First Builders. This was a game that had been on the Board Game Geek list of things that would be available to try out at Gen Con, but ended up not being available to try out at Gen Con. But hey, it was around at PAX Unplugged. This is a dice worker placement game where the very thin theme is that you're in ancient civilizations and of course the aliens are coming down to help you build your monuments and so on and so forth. So there are five colors of dice and those aren't player colors. The five colors of dice represent different types of workers. When you recruit a new worker, you have these little bases that are in your player color and you put the worker in that. And then the main thing that you're assigning them to is to go to one of these five ships and beseech assistance. And right, one of them helps you with military, one of them helps you generate food, one of them helps you get resources, one of them helps you get some more dice, maybe once you've expanded your population, which of course costs food, one of them helps you build structures, that sort of thing. Each of those ships is a plastic piece that's attached to the board. So it has a color that matches the dice colors, and then it has a number on it. And when you assign a worker who matches the color, you get a bonus. But to assign the worker without paying extra, the die has to be at least as much as the value that you can see on the ship. And every time someone assigns to a particular ship, the number rotates up until it hits six, and then it, you know, and then it rotates again, it goes back down to one. But also, the workers, as the game goes on, they get older, essentially, right? And so every round when you collect all your dice back everything increments up by one until eventually they retire to become advisors in your city and then you get extra bonuses from that there's a lot going on in this i got the chance to play part of a game right that's not the sort of game that you're gonna be able to sit in someone's booth and play the whole thing i liked all the interlocking pieces I liked being able to use the different color dice and having to think about when it's worth it to go out of your way to try to get bonuses and when it's just not. 
how do you get these different colors of buildings and you have to lay those out in a particular geographic arrangement over on your side of the table. This one is a, a definite space eater. You're going to need a big table for origins. So like a lot of these things, you kind of have to play through more to see how the balance uh, of everything ultimately works out. But I, I had a, I left a, a good impression of origins first builders. Number seven, I played in the Alderac Entertainment Group Big Game Night. This is the thing they do at every PAX Unplugged. They do at every Gen Con where you pay 40 bucks or whatever it is. And you play a big giant game of Tiny Towns. And then they will teach you how to play a couple of their other games. And then you walk away from it with copies of those games that they just taught you how to play. In this case, the games that they were teaching were Whirling Witchcraft and 10. Talked uh, about 10 in the Gen Con context, so I'm not going to do that right now, but let's talk about Whirling Witchcraft. Thematically, in this game, you are obviously witches, but the object of the game is to overload the components of the player to your right. So every turn, you are playing a spell. And each spell, which stays in front of you and just, you know, you continue to use it every turn, is going to transform resources into other resources. I, I mean, they're, they're specific things. It's frogs, it's mushrooms, it's, you know, mandrake root or, or something like that. But at its core, from a mechanical standpoint, you're turning re one resource into another resource. Now, when you generate those resources, normally you think of resource generation as, okay, I want to generate resources, and then I spend those to do stuff. Well, here, you kind of want to get rid of resources because you only have a certain amount of space on your board to store resources. So when you're generating resources, you're never going to keep them. Maybe you use some of those resources to activate more spells to generate even more resources. But what you ultimately do with the resources that you generate is you put them into your cauldron. And then when everyone is done for the round, you take all the cauldrons and you pass them to the right. And now the player to your right who just got your cauldron, they have to be able to put those things on their board. And at the same time, you're getting a bunch of new ingredients dumped on you from the player to your left. And a player wins the game when they have dumped so many of, of particular kinds of ingredients on the player to their right that they just don't have space to put it. So right, if you have 10 spots for frogs and I dump another three frogs on you, instead I get to take those and put them in my victory point area. You know, you get it's like get the seven and you win. So it's not just about generating raw numbers of ingredients to dump on your opponent. It's about generating a lot of a particular kind so you can overwhelm their storage capacity for that. And it also depends on what they're playing for spells, right? If I have a bunch of spells that use up my mushrooms and my mandrake roots, well, dumping a lot of those on me isn't going to do a lot. It's just going to give me fodder for my spells. But if I don't have spells that use frogs as resources, I'm not going to have anything to do with frogs. And at the same time that you're passing these cauldrons to the right, you're also drafting new spells every round, and those are getting passed to the left. So you actually have the ability to try to intercept really bad spells before they get passed to the player to your left, who's then going to use them on you. You don't have total control because new cards get added into the mix every round, but that is Whirling Witchcraft from Alderac Entertainment Group. Number eight, 
the vinyl holiday edition. Now, let me preface this by saying I haven't actually played the original vinyl, so this is not going to be any sort of compare and contrast. It is related to, but not the same as the prior version of vinyl. And vinyl is, of course, records. In vinyl holiday edition, all of the albums in question are holiday albums, and you are going to be laying those albums out in Christmas tree shapes, because it's the holiday edition. You are going to be sharing a Christmas tree with the player to your right, and you're going to be sharing a Christmas tree with the player to your left. And on each of your turns, you're going to take one of these album cards, they're in square, that you have in your hand, and you're going to be putting it in one of the spots on the Christmas tree next to something that's already there. And if nothing's there, then you can start at the top. And when you put the card down, you're going to score some points right away based on whether or not the card you placed shares symbols with the cards next to it. And, right, the symbols are, some of them are decades, like it's 60s music or 70s music or 40s music. Some of them it's just icons, you know, it's Christmas presents and candy canes. And you're also going to care about where you're putting those cards on the tree because at the end of the game, you're going to score points based on whether or not you got certain symbols in certain locations on your trees based on a hidden objective card that you're also holding in your hand. After you've played out one of those two, then you're going to pick up another card from a row, like a lot of games, right? You can. There's one that's at the bottom. If you take the card from the bottom, then, okay, you take the card from the bottom, or you can go higher up into a newer card, but then you have to put victory point tokens on the albums that have been sitting there longer, thus giving other players the chance to get victory points for that. Now, it's a pretty straightforward game, but there can actually be more going on than you really think, trying to, th- to consider how you use your cards to get different arrangements of icons, to get icons at different places. You're also trying to meet the ability for gift cards, because three times per game, you're going to take one of these albums, and you're going to make it a gift card instead of a you know an album on a tree. You're just going to put it right in front of you. But in order to score the points for that, you have to have one of your trees that you're working on meet the requirements on that. So also, when you're putting albums out on the trees, you got to think about, do I want to save this for a gift card? Does this help me get another gift card that I had? Whoever completes their gift card requirements earliest, they're going to get more points for completing their gift cards. One of the things that helps this game play faster is that most of the time, you're only going to be able to play to one tree. And you're going to have drawn your new album card at the end of your turn. So you kind of get to be looking at that one tree and looking at your hand and thinking about where you're probably going to want to play there. So there's a a good amount of the time when your turn rolls around, you're basically just ready right away to play the card down, which I appreciate because that eliminates the whole, okay, everybody's sitting there twiddling their thumbs while some player, say me, is overanalyzing things. So that was Vinyl Holiday Edition from Talon Strike Games. Number nine, Iconoclash from Strange Machine Games, and shout out for more strange things in uh, gaming-related titles. Iconoclash is like Legacy of Isla Nubar, another one of those, it's going to be coming to Kickstarter. The 
theme of Iconoclash is, I'm going to say, Super Smash Brothers. There's probably some other better word for it than that, but it's Super Smash Brothers because it's a battler. There's probably going to be dragging in some various different properties to, to battle against each other. But I say that because the board is like a side view of one of these Super Smash Brothers arenas where you've got a main sort of island floating out in the sky and then you've got different levels above that and your characters are going to be battling each other but right you can knock each other off and then you fall down and you lose and you know the other player gets points maybe you respawn whatever it is i just really liked the visual of looking down at the board and being like oh yeah because there's already i feel like a decent number of games out there that kind of do the linear traditional just 2d fighting game thing where like maybe you have position of how close they are and maybe you can jump over each other in reverse positions but this is the first one that i've seen that really has this more fluid where there's up and down and left and you can actually get knocked all the way off we look really interesting and coming to kickstarter sometime next year that's iconoclash from strange machine games finally number 10 is going to be cartographers heroes they have at pax unplugged events called Learn and Play, you go in, it's usually two games, and they've got the first game already set up on the table ready for everybody to go. And they teach the whole room how to play the game. It's kind of like the AG Big Game Night, right? Uh, They teach the whole room how to play the game, and you're playing at your one individual table. So the one that I attended was Roll and Write. So it was Cartographer's Heroes and Lost City's Roll and Write. Now, we're going to talk about Cartographer's Heroes here because I cannot win a game of Lost Cities to save my life, and apparently that extends to Lost Cities rolling right, so the two-e on you, Lost Cities. We're going to talk about Cartographer's Heroes, which I now own a copy of, because that game I did win, and whoever at the table won the game that you were playing literally won the game, right? They've got the copy of the game set up, you finish playing the game, you put it away, and whoever won the game gets to take it home. Hey, it's pretty good. This is not the first Cartographer's game that they have done, but this one can be combined with the original cartographers, but this is standalone. And so we're just going to talk about this as a standalone. I I think the thing that it adds different is these heroes, uh, right? The heroes and monsters. So in traditional roll and write fashion, you have got a blank pad in front of you with a nice grid on it. And because this is called cartographers, what you're doing with that grid is making a map. And you're going to be shading in different terrain features like villages and farmland and forests and rivers and the like there are a certain right there's a deck a deck of cards that's going to shuffle up and you know if the lagoon card comes up and then everybody can choose between putting in a forest in a particular shape that is shown on the card or putting water in a particular shape that is shown on the card you're going to be filling in your map as the game goes along and what you're going to care about that map is fundamentally there are four objective cards that are going to reward you with points for having particular terrain features in a particular arrangement. You're going to go through four seasons, and in each season you're going to score two of them. So you're going to have two cards, A and B, that get scored in the spring, and then in the summer B and C will get scored, and so on as you get to winter, and then D and then A will be scored again. So It's not just like what you're trying for. You also want to think about what is going to be scored when, right? If if the B card is what scores villages, villages 
don't do anything for you scoring-wise, really, after summer. You can maybe use them to fill in some other objective, like columns, but that's that. Then, though, in this deck with the normal old terrain cards, there are some number of monsters and heroes. And when a monster comes out, you have to pass your map to the player on your left or right, the card will tell you which one, and they draw the monster in on your map. And then they hand it back to you and laugh maniacally. And these monsters will cost you points at the end of every one of the seasons, and they'll also do other things. Some of them might actually help you if you defeat them. Like, you can defeat a monster by surrounding it. So if you defeat the dragon, it gives you gold coins, which then score points every time you have a scoring round. Other monsters have negative effects every round if you haven't surrounded them. So there's a zombie that starts off as a single square on your map. But if you don't completely surround it, then the zombie horde continues to spread and spread and consume chunks of your map. That sort of thing. Heroes, then, are, are single space cards that you put out in a particular space on your map. But depending on what the hero is, they will then defeat monsters in a particular array of spaces around them. So you might have one hero that's like a knight on a horse with a lance, and then it will defeat all the monsters in three spaces in front of that hero. Or it's an archer, and so it doesn't defeat anything next to them, but then it takes out monster spaces that are two spaces away from them. I had a fun time playing it. It was interesting to have to hand your map off to someone else to mess around with. It was a fun sort of messing around with. It wasn't one of those things where people were getting frustrated that someone was disrupting their pretty, pretty map. And and how much you can disrupt things depends. Sometimes the best thing is you just take the monster and put it out in the middle of nowhere because then it's really hard for them to surround and it's going to drain points out of them. Sometimes you want to try to put the monster up close into things they already have because that then has the possibility of disrupting point scoring in other ways, but then it makes it easier for them to just surround and deal with the monster when you're already putting it up against their existing stuff. That was a fun time. That was Cartographer's Heroes from Thunderworks Games. So those are my 10 things from PAX Unplugged. You might hear a little bit more about some stuff we did at PAX Unplugged later on, but not really specifically in the PAX Unplugged context. So let's move on to the very brief 2021 end-of-year wrap-up. So let's start with 2020. Because as per usual, we're going to go back now, and having had enough time, we're going to award the 2020 Game of the Year. Normally, at the end of each year, we designate a preliminary Game of the Year, which is like, this is the one that we like the best based on what we've played so far, but we acknowledge that you know we haven't really played enough to make a, a firm judgment on that, especially with the backload of, of Essen releases that can occur. We didn't even do that in 2020, so I don't have something to compare it to to what we had. But our runner-up for Game of the Year for 2020 is Dune Imperium. Our 2020 Game of the Year is Lost Ruins of Arnak from CGE. Lost Ruins of Arnak is it's a deck-building game, but right this is the continued evolution of deck-building where... The deck building takes place in a much larger context. In a lot of ways, this is a Euro game that has deck building elements. There are research tracks to go up to generate resources. You are exploring into the jungle for these lost ruins of Arnak. It takes resources to get to the different locations, right? You can't just 
builds your deck. Although one of the things that your deck does do is generate the resources that you can use for these things. There's multiple different kinds of cards you can buy, stuff that happens right away, stuff that goes in your deck and does it later. You can use the addition of bad things into your deck as a resource and then the spending of those bad things out of your deck as a resource or beneficial effect again later. You sit down and you play Lost Ruins of Arnak, and for the first time you're doing the first turn, you're like, wow, this game only lasts five turns. Like That seems weird, a deck, a deck building game that only lasts five turns. But like I said, this is really deck building just as a mechanical element of a game. And so honestly, by the time you get later in the game, your turns get really wild. It's only five turns, but turn number five is going to take much longer than turn number one. But it's it's fun pretty much the whole way around. So that's our 2020 Game of the Year, Lost Ruins of Arnak. Now, we didn't declare one for 2020, but we are going to declare a preliminary Game of the Year for 2021. Again, this is the best so far. This is not the final word from us on 2021. That will come sometime into 2022 once we've played enough to make a firmer judgment, but our preliminary game of the year for 2021 is Furnace from Arcane Wonders and Hobby World. You can hear more about Furnace in episode 305 of the podcast, which was our Gen Con 2021 coverage. Furnace is a literal engine building game. Like It's an engine building game where the theme is that you're making factories. You have a line of cards out in a row that you're bidding on, but it's a very distinctive bidding system where you have four tokens with fixed bids. And yeah, if you win the bid for a particular card, you get that card and you can use it in your engine every turn. But the bids that you lose are just as important because on the edge of each of the cards is what you get if you lose the bid. And if you lose with a big bid, you're going to get to do it more times, right? If you bid your one token, you just get whatever that thing is once. If you bid your three, you're going to get it three times. And that can be a big source of resources, especially. Sometimes it's converting resources into other ones, but just raw resource generation is an important part of that. It's really elegant. It plays really smoothly. There's variable player powers, if you want to play with them, that liven things up a bit and let you manipulate some stuff with the tokens. It feels both really different and really smooth, which you usually don't don't get a lot. I like that it just really hums instead of being clunky and complex. That is Furnace from Arcane Wonders and Hobby World, our preliminary 2021 game of the year. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. You can find more of our content on strangeassembly.com. You can subscribe to this podcast there on the Apple Podcasts app or whatever your favorite podcatching service is. If you don't see Strange Assembly on your preferred podcatching service, please let me know and I will address that situation. You can reach me at chris at strangeassembly.com. You can also find us on the usual social media. We're at Strange Assembly on Twitter, at Strange Assembly on Instagram, facebook.com slash strangeassembly, and We have a Strange Assembly YouTube channel if you'd like to hear me talk more about role-playing games. But until then, I'm Chris Stevenson. This is Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming.